1: And welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Chris Voitek from St. Xavier University. And today we'll be talking to Albert Wu from the American University in Paris about his new book, From Christ to Confucius, German Missionaries, Chinese Christians, and the Globalization of Christianity from 1860 to 1950. Um, Albert Wu, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So, Albert, I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, I was born in uh, the U.S., but I grew up mainly in Taiwan. I moved back with my parents when I was uh, six years old and spent uh, ages six to 18 uh, there. And then I came uh, as an undergrad to the U.S. I studied history at uh, Columbia University in New York, where I studied uh, a combination of European and American history and after that, uh, I spent a year in Europe, uh, because I knew I needed to sort of get better at languages and, uh, applied to study history at the university of California, Berkeley. Um, and I got my PhD there in 2013. Uh, and the dissertation that I wrote, uh, is essentially, uh, the book, um, and I studied uh, the relationship between uh, Germany and China. I was sort of trained simultaneously as a European history historian and a Chinese historian. Um, and after I got my PhD it, at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, I moved to Paris, where I've been teaching for the past three years. Uh, at Paris, uh, I teach a combination of courses: European history, but also global history. And, uh, the past year I've, since September, I've been a postdoctoral fellow, uh, on a Humboldt, uh, foundation fellowship, uh, in Berlin, sort of working on the second book project.
1: Well, that's, um, so that's, I that was actually going to be, and you started to answer that a little, that was going to be one of my questions. Do you consider yourself like a German historian, a historian of missions, uh, sort of a, global or transnational historians or how do you see yourself? Fitting yeah. into that Framework.
0: Um, I definitely started grad school thinking of myself primarily as a European historian. Um, and I was trained, uh, my main advisor, uh, was Peggy Anderson, who's a 19th century German religious historian. And I started out, uh, definitely feeling like I was going to go more into German religious history. And, uh, as the, as my uh, graduate, um, stint, is that the right word? <laughs> or, my graduate career developed. Tour. tour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I felt, uh, pulled increasingly, uh, more towards, uh, the transnational. Actually, it was primarily my advisor who encouraged me. Um, she said, well, you have this background in, in Taiwan and, in these, and you have this training in these Asian in, in in Chinese, so you should definitely take advantage of that. And um, so I became increasingly more drawn to transnational history and Chinese history as well. Um, I didn't really take much Chinese history as an undergrad, and it wasn't really until graduate school that I started a, a serious study of uh, modern Chinese history. Um, so. I think I still, uh, back to your original question, I I feel like I primarily see myself as a European historian in terms of the the questions that I ask Mm -hmm. uh, about the the fundamental um, issues that I'm interested in, such as religious conflict. But I think I'm framing it more within a transnational framework or a broader global context. And I'm starting to see more and more that uh, you can't really understand these fundamentally quote unquote European issues without placing them in this global frame.
1: And that absolutely, that absolutely comes out in the book, which by the way, I totally forgot to say, I really enjoyed Um, (laughs) speaking of that, you know, sort of, how did you get on? So how did you get on this topic specifically? You, you know, you were obviously working with Peggy Anderson, thinking Mm -hmm. about using your, your expertise, but how did you start thinking about missionaries?
0: Yeah, so um, as an undergrad, I was interested in religious history. Uh, um, my first week in college was uh, September 11th.
1: Oh, goodness. Uh, oh.
0: Yeah, so I guess I was always interested in how religion shaped political action and vice versa, or how political okay. uh, behaviors shaped religion. Um, so I guess religious but the religious history questions were sort of on my mind. So when I got to graduate school, um, my first project was actually on prison reform in Germany in the 19th century. And it was led by a group of these religious reformers uh, at the head of the intermission, um, what they called the intermission, uh, this, this uh, reformer named uh, Vickern uh, Johan Henrik Vickern was sort of my main character that I was following. And, uh, essentially it was sort of, a uh, the, the project was about, um, conservative evangelical, quote unquote evangelical reformers who tried to, um, change the prison system, um, along sort of more of a, uh, uh, American model, uh, if you if you will, um, and as I sort of looked at these reformers, I realized that the inner mission was completely tied in with the the outer mission too, and so I got pushed more and more to looking at what people were thinking about, not just inside of the German lands, but also outside of the German lands in uh, Asia and Africa, and so. It started out as sort of a 19th century social question pro- uh, uh, project and then sort of emerged from there. So uh, all that's to say that uh, most of the, the missionaries that I'm interested in or that I looked at for this project at least are more from the conservative uh, spectrum, theological spectrum. Um, so I was interested in sort of what these conservative Uh, missionaries were doing how they understood their project uh, how they justified it theologically um, as opposed to I think which uh, the more familiar narrative at least among missionary studies, uh, German missionary studies like the liberals like Richard Wilhelm for example Mm -hmm. who's who's much more familiar I think uh, in most historical narratives
1: Now so I'm Let's talk a little bit about you know you, 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 you're segueing yourself very beautifully by the way. Uh, you talked a little bit about how the, these conservative missionaries and there's several groups that you that you focus on. You talk about the Berlin Missionary Society, um, mm-hmm. you talk about the Society of the Design Word. Can you design the yeah, divine the design word, mm-hmm. the divine word. Can you uh-huh. talk a little bit about who these who these folks are, what their what their thoughts are regarding China, why China is uh, is a place that they start to look um when they do in the late 19th century right
0: great um so both i i i designed the project uh to be Mm cross-confessional um most uh of the missionary studies whether it be in the american uh anglo-american sphere or the french sphere for that matter or german sphere uh most of them are studies of either single denominations or of uh, single confessions, like either Protestant or Catholic histories. So when I when I was looking into writing the book or the dissertation, I wanted to make the project uh, comparative between. So I chose uh, the the largest or most, uh, arguably the most influential uh, missionary societies in China, and I'll get get to the question about why China in a little bit. But um, as the, both the Berlin Missionary Society and the Society of the Divine Word, which is the, the Catholic Society, uh, were products of nineteenth the 19th century religious revival. Mm-hmm. Um, the Berlin Missionary Society uh, is older. Uh, it was founded uh, essentially uh, in 1824, but uh, the the founders of the society were all sort of um, awakened pietist leaders. Many of them had ties to uh, the Prussian state. Um, And uh, so they, they basically could draw on uh, a certain amount of state support uh, from the Prussian state, but they also uh, essentially had quite a bit of a sort of uh, pietist revivalist outlook. Um, And essentially uh, what that meant was that they were anti-Enlightenment. They thought that uh, the Napoleonic invasions of uh the early nineteenth century were a product of uh the French Enlightenment and uh that the their mission, so to speak, was to uh re-evangelize both the German lands but also uh the lands uh, abroad. Um, The Catholic society of the divine word, on the other hand, uh, is also a product of uh, sort of the Catholic revivals of the mid 19th century, also uh, sort of anti-enlightenment and outlook, um, but they're founded much later and in uh, a different sort of set of political context, uh, which is that they were a product of the culture and uh, even though most of their founders were Germans, uh, the uh, initial uh, founding or the initial house where the Society of the Divine Word was uh, uh, was housed was in uh, the Netherlands in, in style. So they had to move across the border because uh, religious orders were banned uh, by Bismarck under the Kulturkampf initially. Um, so both of them have... Uh, this very particular outlook um, are very much forged in uh, this moment uh, of 19th century religious revival, but also uh, both the, the difference between them is that they, they have sort of very different relationships to uh, the German state. Um, the Berlin mission society and to some, to some extent, uh, I mean, to very much uh, a large extent, uh, much more, uh, much closer to the Prussian state and uh, the Society of the Divine Word, and some to some extent, uh, much more anta- antagonistic towards it. And uh, so, so that's sort of the background of them and why they're interested in China. Um, for both, uh, so the Berlin Mission Society actually starts out sending most of their missionaries to. Uh, Africa um, so their their earliest missions is actually in uh, uh, in I, I think what we would now call uh, modern-day South Africa uh, but uh, they essentially are uh, inspired by some of the missionary tales especially um, this missionary named Carl uh who goes to China he sort of It partakes in the opium wars and he comes back to Germany and um, uh, sort of whips up uh, a China fervor um, (laughs) and and sort of regales people with all these tales about uh, about China. Um, And so uh, they basically start uh, sending missionaries to China uh, more seriously in the 1860s. Um, the society, the society of the divine word, on the other hand, they start out uh, wanting to go to China. And for them, uh, the reason that they want to go to China is, uh, primarily a, a statistical or numerical one. Uh, I think at one point they say China is the, the land of our great hope and our great desires. Uh, and they basically say, if we can convert even a percentage of the, uh, 555 million, uh, people, uh, which is the statistic they quote at the time, uh, this would be a major boon for our mission. Um, so for them, they basically start out uh, by sending missionaries uh, to China from 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 the beginning.
1: I loved. I actually I loved that bit where they were going to balance the books, and part of this, <laughs> and something that you you do is that you talk about how um, their motivations are are not just about evangelizing to the Chinese, but correcting the sort of tide of secularism that they see in Europe more broadly. Can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, it, in the 19th century, the uh, part of what uh, I was trying to say about the uh, religious revival is that, uh, the missionaries see themselves as being beleaguered by the, the rise of enlightenment forces, um, uh, and so they see uh, this moment of expanding abroad as right, exactly, like you said, elegantly, uh, a, a moment to, to balance the books and uh, sort of regain the lost, uh, uh, the lost souls globally. Uh, but they also see uh, it not only as a moment to sort of regain uh, territory the way the Jesuits did in uh, the early modern period, uh, but they also see uh, sort of uh, – uh, they also see their goal as inspiring the faithful in Europe to be recommitted to church causes. So um, donations are a big part of this. They say uh, they say to – in their missionary journals, you know, you should give a little bit to the missions as a way to show your piety. Um, so – you know the missionaries are those who are uh, basically uh, enacting this path of martyrdom, or or going on these uh, uh, these really dangerous quests. But you, as uh, you know, a, a member of the congregation in Germany, you can do your part by reading our missionary journals, by uh, contributing a little bit each week. And uh, a big part of the success of these missionary societies in the 19th centuries is uh, the amount of laid donations that they're able to receive. So both uh, the society of the divine word and the Berlin mission societies essentially do most of their work without state support. Um, I mean, obviously when they get into the, the colonies or when they get into East Asia, they're, they're very much reliant on, The state to do certain things for them, but in Germany, um, basically, uh, the society of the divine word is able to expand because they're able to sell a lot of copies of their journals, um, uh, sell a lot of uh, you know trinkets, and uh, uh, their missionary festivals each year when missionaries come back and tell tales of uh, exciting adventures in in China and Africa or whatnot uh, are extremely popular. Um, So I think it's it's not only a matter of sort of uh, winning the statistical table uh, worldwide, but also uh, reigniting the faithful to uh, to become more uh, devoted to certain church causes.
1: Now, you're so your cross sort of cross confessional framing um, kind of lets you look at the way that these t- different societies sort of communicate with each other and kind of learn from each and of course they don't always, but they sort of mm-hmm. learn from each other's failures right and you've got this failure as sort of a framework you've got in your introduction you talk about the missionary perceptions of failure Failure mm-hmm. in the third chapter you talk about the missionaries responding to failure um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how um, failure is something ultimately instructive to missionaries in China and how they, how they understand their own failures as a way to sort of change their tactics.
0: Right, great um, yeah uh, I think there was a a bit of a paradox when I was doing research on the book, which is um, well, in most of the narratives that I read or the historiographical narratives, the 19th century was this uh, period of missionary optimism. Um, And you see this a lot in uh, a lot of the missionary rhetoric, perhaps the, the most famous example of the sort of missionary optimism in the 19th century or the late 19th century, early 20th century, was when John Mott famously said, oh, we're going to evangelize the world in a generation, that we're going to conquer the world. And there's all this talk in the 19th century uh, by missionaries about uh, this this real confidence that uh, missionaries are going to sort of uh, just march through the world and uh, Christianize all these parts that they previously uh, had no access to, and now that they had now they had access to them through the steamship or uh, through the railway. But when I read uh, many of these missionary accounts, either letters uh, from missionaries back to their superiors, or even within the missionary journals themselves, or at uh, reports at missionary conferences, oftentimes uh, I was just surprised by how uh, open missionaries were about their failures. Um, Mm -hmm. they were constantly talking about how their evangelization tactics were failing, how they weren't able to really sort of make progress on the ground. Uh, in personal letters, missionaries often wrote about, um, their, their loneliness, about how homesick they were, uh, Missionary missionary attrition rates were also extremely high. Uh, missionaries oftentimes uh, got sick in the field and died. So, so there are all these instances, and then there's also the the, the political uh, realities of not being able to convert people on the ground. So, throughout the 18, throughout the 19th century in China, for example, there are huge anti-Christian. Uh, demonstrations, uh, and also anti-Christian violence, the most uh, sort of violent, uh, I mean, throughout the 1870s, there uh, there's anti-Christian violence on the ground. And in the 1890s worldwide, uh, there is there are these series of anti-Christian uh, sort of outbursts from Africa to uh, China, and perhaps the most violent of them being the Boxer Uprising in 1900. Mm-hmm. So you have all of these uh, sort of political realities where, uh, uh, where missionaries are uh, failing. And so I was just struck by that sort of paradox where, on one hand, you, uh, there was this sort of historical, historiographical or, histori- or uh, to some extent, uh, the missionaries would also talk about this sort of missionary optimism But on the other hand, there was this real sort of sense of failure. So I I, I sort of honed in on um, these missionary reports about their own failures. And I realized that uh, the missionaries were uh, slowly but surely learning from their failures. Uh, They were actually responding uh, in these missionary conferences and at these journals to uh, this sense, uh, this overwhelming sense of failure that they felt. And one of the tactics that they started to embrace uh, very slowly in the 19th century was that they started to turn towards indigenization or Mm -hmm. uh, a turn towards uh, indigenous converts. And it it was very slow uh, and it wasn't across the board, but uh, missionaries both on the Protestant and the Catholic side uh, started to recognize in the late 19th century that uh, the best way to convert uh, people was to uh, devolve power more quickly but um but there was real st- there was still uh, a real reluctance to it um, and a-, a lot of debate about how to do that
1: well and one of the you know one of the sort of tensions that then emerges at that point is whether or not Chinese Christians are mature enough to sort of handle their own churches right, right? and you mentioned that while African Christians are sort of left to their – start eventually left to their own devices. There's all this debate about not only um, logistical debate about how to do this, but also whether or not they can – they should handle this. And, and then, then at that point, we start to see sort of agitation. Uh, we start to see agitation from Chinese Christians themselves about right. having more independence. Can you speak a little bit about that?
0: Exactly. Um, right. So uh, – and this is the interesting – Thing about doing this sort of comparative work too and it ties back to your previous question about why china which is that um, the missionaries did have this idea of china as a civilizational competitor or a civilizational alternative and this dates back to the early modern period uh, when the jesuits are there uh but there's this real idea that um And a lot of this in the 19th century is also mixed in with uh, a relationship to anthropology um, and sort of uh, the emergence of race studies. But uh, there's this idea that uh, in China, because China has this longer civilization, there's more of a resistance to uh, to uh, to China's uh, conversion to Christianity as opposed to. Uh, Africa, which supposedly has no quote unquote civilization and therefore is more ripe for conversion um so there's this real idea uh here in in China that missionaries really need to sort of tackle or grapple with um the civilization that's on the ground, and mm-hmm. they call this uh you know sort of Confucianism mm-hmm. um and in order to sort of to convert the Chinese, you have to either delegitimize Confucianism, convince the Chinese that Confucianism is outdated, outmoded, or in some other way, shape, or form, get rid of Confucianism altogether. So there's this idea that uh, the major stumbling block in the 19th century uh, to China's Christianization is the continuing uh, uh, sort of uh, grasp that or hold that Confucianism has on the Chinese population. Now this, uh, and like you said, uh, at the same time that missionaries are putting forth uh, these ideas in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, you start to have a cohort of Chinese Christians who had uh, the first sort of uh, well, I mean, uh, Catholic conversion had, has, has many centuries, but, uh, you know, Protestants, uh, really, this would have been the second or third generation, second generation of Christian converts who are increasingly getting more confidence uh, in their beliefs. So, so they're also pushing back on the missionaries uh, and uh, trying to get sort of uh, more power and more local authority uh, on the ground uh, from both uh, Catholic and Protestant uh, missionary societies as well. And how that plays out, too, is that they're also pushing back in terms of um, how they see the relationship between uh, traditional Chinese culture or Confucianism and Christianity, uh, too.
1: This all, uh, you know, and all of this is unfolding against a backdrop of this new emerging form of Chinese nationalism, right? Mm -hmm. Which they have to sort of, um, and the Chinese Christians have to deal with this, right? And they have to sort of figure out how to explain Christianity and interpret Christianity as something that's not just an import. Can you talk a little bit about how nationalism and Christianity are intention or not at various points at that that moment?
0: Yeah. uh, So there's a there's a real tension in the sense that um, um, with the rise of Chinese nationalism and especially uh, with the overturning of uh, the Qing dynasty, um, sort of local uh, elites or educated uh, local elites out at the ground have different sort of employment opportunities than they had before. So uh, especially uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, especially as we get into the, the 1920s. Uh, the, the the missionary societies see a lot of their the people, the Chinese Christians that they're trying to recruit, essentially uh, sort of uh, uh, go to uh, the nationalist government and, and start start to work for the for the nationalist government. Uh, but even before uh, uh, the the overturning of the, of the, of the Qing dynasty, essentially you start to have, uh, these nationalist calls, um, to expel Christianity from the border. Um, and a lot of this had to do, uh, with, uh, with seeing Christianity as, um, Essentially, foreign foreign imperialism or foreign imperialists, and tying Christianity with the foreign imperial imperial powers. So this put uh, Chinese Christians in this very awkward middle position uh, between their missionary supervisors or uh, the people who essentially uh, paid for uh, their living or uh, for their education um, and essentially this rising tide of nationalism that's uh, swelling uh, in the countryside and also across uh, the country at large. Um, So Chinese Christians are sort of put in um, this awkward position. And especially as Chinese Christians uh, gain increasing uh, prominence, uh, a, a new generation of Chinese intellectuals emerge especially in the 19-teens, they're increasingly putting more pressure on their missionary supervisors to say, look, if if you want Christianity to succeed, we really need to uh, get rid of this relationship to foreign imperialism. Um, We we really need to have more independent local authority. And at the same time, they're trying to defend Christianity to uh, their uh, Chinese counterparts who are increasingly, or aren't, are attacking, uh, Christianity with increasing sort of intellectual fervor and also political fervor.
1: Now you, uh, you, you have World War One as sort of a, I don't know if you would think of it as a turning point, but as mm-hmm. I was reading, it kind of seems like a bit of a turning point in the way missionaries are both received and the way Chinese Christians are able to operate. Uh, Could you maybe uh, explain that a little bit?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yes. So world war one is definitely uh, what I see as sort of the breaking point uh, that fractures uh, the missionary landscape and also the Chinese Christian landscape along several different lines. Um, And these, these, uh, these lines had already started to emerge before the First World War, but it's really uh, the First World War that uh, sort of sort of blows it all apart. Um, one line is uh, one that we just talked about, which is the rise of sort of Chinese Christian intellectuals and, and, and Chinese intellectuals who are increasingly uh, more uh, critical of Christianity but also, uh, within the Western missionary, uh, sphere there, the first world war also fractures, uh, a, a series of these different, uh, alliances that had previously seemed to have been, uh, improving, uh, primarily for the Germans, uh, this was cooperation with American or British, uh, missionaries, um. Uh, sorry, for German Protestants. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: so before the First World War, uh, German Protestants had started to engage in ecumenical cooperation uh, with American and British missionaries. They started to go to these conferences. They were talking about cooperation. Uh, a lot of it was very reluctant. Uh, <laughs> but Germans oftentimes considered uh, uh, the, their Anglo-American counterparts as uh, theologically naive or a little uh, too optimistic. Uh, but for the most part, before the first world war, they were willing to engage uh, in that sort of uh, dialogue and exchange. Um, but after the first world war, uh, primarily because of uh, this clause in the Versailles treaty or an article in the Versailles treaty that the Anglo-Americans had helped to push through article 438, which com- confiscated uh, German missionary properties. Uh, the Germans felt betrayed by their Anglo-American uh, missionary counterparts. The Anglo-Americans basically said, uh, we're basically holding on to these missionary uh, properties to prevent them from being stolen by the secular state. But the Germans didn't really believe that. Um, and so after uh, the first world war, the Germans essentially become more nationalistic on the Protestant side they start to uh, join in more German speaking alliances in China. Um, They sort of bury some theological disagreements with other German speaking missionary societies that they had uh, engaged in, in the 19th century. So uh, on the Protestant side, there's this split between uh, these different uh, missionary nations as a result of the first world war. Um, On the Catholic side, the story is slightly different, which is that uh, the SVD or uh, German Catholics in general uh, can rely on uh, uh, the emergence of the Vatican as a major diplomatic force um, and also their international character. So uh, the German uh, Catholic Missionary Society has an American branch that they had started to set up. Uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And so they had American allies who could lobby for them. um, And they also had the Vatican uh, who could push for them in these major uh, sort of diplomatic arenas. Um, So what you see for the German Catholics is that they uh, start growing closer and increasingly sort of uh, uh, more oriented towards uh, Vatican directives. And, uh, what's happening at the Vatican is that the Vatican is also adopting new approaches to missionary work. Um, the, uh, the Pope, uh, who, who dies very shortly after the first world war Benedict the 15th is very much committed to this idea of, uh, indigenous clergy and engagement with, uh, local, uh, sort of cultures So uh, what you see is that the the German Catholics also start to sort of push in that direction as well. So you have these uh, these these three different I I sort of see them uh, three different um, spheres in which people are operating in uh, the Chinese Chinese intellectuals who are uh, increasingly um, influenced by nationalism uh, and nationalist critiques of Christianity uh, the Chinese uh, Christians who are also pushing for more power on the ground. Um, and then you have these w- Western missionary groups that are fragmented along national lines. But you also have these sort of international groups like the Vatican who are sort of uh, trying to uh, 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 work in between um, these these different um, missionary organizations and also uh, nations as well.
1: Um, now, one thing that I thought was pretty cool uh, that seems to re- at least really inter- and unexpected to me is that after the First World War, so a lot of these missionaries are feeling threatened by secularism. You know, and some of the Catholic ones are like, "Oh my gosh, it's a new Kulturkampf and um, yeah. and in and so in China, as you were, as you've just been saying, you know, they start to look anew at indigenization as as a model for the church and. One thing in particular is that both Protestants and Catholics start to chill out about Confucianism. Right. What is that all about?
0: <laughs> right. Um, so this is this is also the unexpected uh, finding that I found was there's, you know, when you look at most of these missionary journals in the 19th century, uh, I sort of mentioned this previously. They were they were talking about you know getting rid of Confucianism. They're often talking about Confucianism, uh, Confucius himself is. Uh, being this uh, sort of uh, snake charmer who had misled uh, the Chinese had uh, sort of uh, uh, set up all of the stumbling blocks for China's subsequent uh, backwardness um, and had prevented essentially Confucius's ideas as uh, preventing uh, China's modernization. But by the 1920s and the 1930s, missionaries completely changed their tune i mean they they're talking about confucius as this sort of um as a world historical figure and uh, perhaps the most uh, obvious example that i found was this uh berlin missionary uh named karl johannes Voskamp. uh and before the war he was essentially one of the most vehement anti-confucian voices on the scene um and he wrote a series of pamphlets, essentially denouncing Confucius. And after 1919, uh, he no longer publishes any anti-Confucian tracts. And he basically starts to talk about Confucius as a Christ-like figure. That uh, uh, another missionary, uh, this this is a Catholic missionary, says. Uh, I think at one point he says, "You know, as as Confucius rises, so does Christ." So they missionaries start to see. Uh, sort of Christ and Confucius as inseparable as their fates in China as sort of linked together. And part of the reason uh, that I see this, uh, this alliance is because, um, basically missionaries, both on the Catholic and Protestant side, see Confucianism as no longer a threat, um, that the bigger threat on, on, uh, the world stage and also the stage in China is the rise of communism and this sort of global secular, uh, uh, atheist secular force. Um, and, uh, part of this is, uh, the German missionary experience in Germany, uh, where they see the November revolution and they see the rise of the German left. Uh, but, also part of this is that they are sort of being uh, threatened and surrounded uh, in China as well. Uh, uh, the rise of these sort of Chinese uh, nationalists, secular, uh, secular nationalists who are criticizing uh, uh, Christianity, uh, but also uh, on the ground in uh, many of their missionary stations are uh, being attacked uh, by sort of what they consider Uh, communist robbers Um, so by the 1920s essentially uh, these german missionaries both protestant and catholics see uh, communism or this sort of global secular uh, left as the bigger threat on the stage and in, in order to survive in china they reach out to their former foes the confucians and they say, well, at least we can build an alliance with uh you know uh the Confucians in, in China because they're something that uh are they're somewhat similar to us. They're a religion, uh they respect family values, they're traditional, uh so we can sort of have this uh quote unquote religious alliance on the ground in China. And part of this also is that they're saying. Uh, Germany and China after the war are spiritually brothers now or uh, spiritually tied because we've both been on the uh, quote unquote losing side of the war. So, so it's this sort of um, complicated uh, uh, confluence of these different factors, but essentially I see it as uh, uh, that they're choosing Confucianism as a political ally because they see uh, Confucianism as no longer their major threat in China.
1: And there are an awful lot of threats in China. Um, It's been been a while since I've taken Chinese history, but I'm, you know, this this very tumultuous period where we've got rising nationalism, um, we've got the Japanese looming on the horizon. And it seems like the Second World War really sort of changes some... Chinese Christian thinking about how independent they can really be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sort of become convinced that they kind of, they need foreign help. Um, can you speak a little bit about that?
0: That's absolutely right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So uh, essentially, um, the, one of the through lines that I, I, trace throughout the book is this, uh, idea of, you know, so ha- when did Chinese Christians actually become independent in these, soci- in these two societies? And, uh, I was just surprised that, uh, that the independence of the Chinese Christians come so late that it comes basically, uh, for both, uh, missionary societies essentially in the 1930s. Um, and on, on both sides, uh, essentially it's because of the war, um, that financially they're unable to continue, uh, Especially for the Protestants, but also for the Catholics, they're uh, financially unable to continue supporting the missions in the same way. So they uh, are forced to give up power and devolve power to uh, local uh, Chinese Christians. Uh, But when this actually happens, when they actually do devolve power and uh, sort of give over this missionary uh, control or control of the local congregations to uh, the Chinese Christians. Um, It turns out that many of the Chinese Christians uh, are unhappy with this because this means um, that they're cut off from resources, uh, they're cut off from uh, their monthly stipends, or they're cut off from the ability to uh, sort of fix their chapels and that sort of stuff, especially during wartime. And what I found uh, in the archives is actually that there were oftentimes letters written by uh, the Chinese Christian leaders asking the Germans to continue to uh, support, uh, to to continue to give them support um, and not to sort of leave them behind. So uh, it becomes uh, this a, a real story about political destabilization. And how uh, this destabilizing um, broader context uh, really sort of shifts the way people talk about uh, indigenization. Where on the one hand, uh, the Germans who had previously been very reluctant to indigenize now say, okay, so we're going to give over control. And then the Chinese who had previously said, hey, give us more control now are saying, uh, actually, maybe we want you to stay a little bit longer. So, so the positions are are sort of constantly shifting because of the the uh, the sort of unstable political situation that's uh, that's that surrounds them.
1: That's and and of course things don't get a huge amount better after the war because we finally sure. get this well a victory of the communists and then you do this really interesting thing towards the end of the book where you you kind of trace the experiences of Ling and Chen, Mr. Ling and Mr. Chen mm-hmm. and their how they sort of accommodate themselves and their and their thinking and practices to to communism and its antipathy to religion across the board. Can you speak a little bit about them?
0: Right. Um so I essentially wanted to uh trace two members uh or I, I Uh, I'll back up a little. Um, The hardest part about writing uh, histories of Christianity in China is actually getting to the voices of Chinese Christians themselves, because oftentimes they're mediated either through the missionary society or many of those sources in China themselves uh, are either inaccessible or they're gone. Um, So I was trying really hard to get at the voices of these uh, sort of, on-the-ground Chinese Christians. And I still don't think I I, I was able to really get to uh, a, a congregational member who was sitting in the pews. And the closest I could get were uh, sort of uh, people who had been trained by the missionary societies or were affiliated with the missionary societies and had risen to some form of provi- prominence and had left behind some writing. And so on the Catholic side, uh, I wrote about uh, – Chen Yuan, who was, uh, the president of, who became the president of the university that the missionary society ran and was very close to the missionary society. And on, uh, the other hand, uh, on the Protestant side, I, I wrote about, uh, Ling De Yuan, who, uh, uh, otherwise would not be known in Chinese history, uh, but, uh, was basically a, a local pastor raised, uh, by, uh, the, uh, by the Berlin Missionary Society, he was basically a product of the Berlin Missionary Society's uh, uh, educational systems from from a very young age up until uh, uh, until they left. Um, uh, I, I need to add too that Chen Yuan is a, 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 a the president of uh, Furuan University was is a, was a, a, a very prominent historian of Chinese religion. So it, within sort of uh, Chinese history. He's he's quite well known. Um, but the reason why I wanted to choose uh, them is that both of them uh, essentially after the communists came to power, uh, both Ling and Chen, uh repudiate their former missionary supervisors. Um, they ba- basically sort of sign uh, these uh, statements, uh, Chen for Chen uh, Yuan, for the most part, uh, was the most vehement. He said, you know, I was mistaken by associating myself with these uh, foreign missionaries. They were all Western imperialists. At the time, I was mistaken. And Ling De Yuen, uh the, the pastor for the Berlin Missionary Society, essentially does the same thing. He's, he signs a manifesto uh, that sort of repudiates his past. And I think uh, how they've been treated and uh, how uh, Christians... Chinese Christians like Ling and Sun have been treated in the uh, historiography. uh, Oftentimes they've been sort of portrayed as uh, traitors or people who had betrayed Mm -hmm. their Christian faith, uh, people who, who didn't really sort of um, who weren't quote unquote really Christian. And the real Christians are those who had uh, suffered under the communist regime. And uh, these oftentimes in the West are people that we, uh, uh, sort of have heard about like Watchmen nee, um, who were sort of put in prison by the Communist Party, and they were quote unquote the true believers uh, who suffered for their faith. And I, I, I've always had a, a bit of a problem with that narrative because I think it doesn't really uh, put into real focus the the dilemma that these Chinese Christians. Like Chen and Ling uh, had to go through, and also sort of the real uh, sort of political crises uh, that they were surrounded by. And I think for somebody like a local pastor like Ling, for him, the biggest question was how do I keep the missionaries, how do I keep the church running? How do I keep uh, my congregation fed. How do I just sort of essentially keep the lights on? Um, and for a period of time, it was you know trying to get the Germans to continue to uh, invest in the mission. And now that the Chinese communists have come, I'm going to have to accommodate to them and sort of make a political compromise with them in order to keep the congregation running. And in that sense, he does succeed. He the, he he essentially. Uh, makes a compromise with uh, the Chinese Communist State, but he's able to continue to sort of function at the local level as a pastor, albeit as one that is sponsored uh, by the Chinese uh, Communist Party. For intellectuals uh, like Chen, on the other hand, I think it's he's put in much more of a difficult uh, position in the sense that uh, he's forced to make thing, uh, make sort of statements. Uh, that sort of repudiate his past. And I think for, the, for intellectuals like Chen, it's, it's a real tragedy in the sense that um, he really has to sort of turn his back on uh, all of the uh, major accompli- accomplishments that I, I, I think he, he was able to sort of try uh, to, to push forward in the 1930s and 40s, which is this idea of a more tolerant uh, uh, China one which is religiously diverse and open, and that was sort of the the basis of his scholarship in the 1920s and 30s. Which is, he was he was looking into the past, uh, it, you know, in in previous periods in China when China was open to all these different religious influences, and uh, he was thinking about how to reconstruct a new China based on this sort of religiously tolerant model. And for him, this was the 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 sort of the early period of the Yuan dynasty of the Mongols when there was this sort of religious diversity. And I think the real the real tragedy for intellectuals like Chen is that he he one doesn't really see that uh, that model come to fruition before his death, but also that publicly he has to sort of renounce all of those uh, those positions that I think he he probably still held on to until his death.
1: Okay. Well, we've taken up quite a bit of your time. Um, Now, I guess my final question is, what are you working on next? You said you're at a second book project. How's that going? Uh,
0: (laughs) It's uh, going slower than than I'd like. Um, The second book project is partly uh, an emergence from the first. Uh, So uh, as I was doing work on uh, missionaries, uh, it's hard not to come across uh, their medical work, and uh, they missionaries were uh, sort of the main forces in setting up uh, hospitals and medical colleges uh, in China. And when I was working on the book, I, I always thought, okay, I'll just sort of table this um, and come maybe come back to it. So now I'm sort of coming back to it. but uh, more broadly, I'm interested in uh, global health governance. And um, I'm not only looking at missionaries for uh, this second project, I'm I'm starting to move into more, uh, quote unquote, secular uh, international organizations. Uh, And it'll probably uh, be focused uh, more on the 20s and 30s. So looking at uh, what these international health organizations like the League of Nations uh, health organizations um, um, are doing in China Um, and I'm sort of, I want to compare, uh, what, you know, secular doctors are doing compared to sort of medical missionaries. And I've sort of identified, uh, several organizations that i am uh, interested in. Um, so since I've been in Paris, I've been using the Pasteur Institute, uh, archives and the Pasteur Institute set up a, a lab in, in China, Um, but also looking at these other European uh, tropical medicine institutes. So this year, when I'm in, as I've been in uh, Germany, uh, I've been at the Hamburg Tropical uh, Medical Institute, and they sent people to China as well. Um, And essentially, I want to think about how, uh, what these doctors learn in China. And I guess it's sort of a continuation of my first project in, in the sense that my first project was uh, very much interested in what German missionaries or European missionaries learn from China and what they bring back with them to uh, Europe. And I guess I'm sort of similar, similarly interested in what uh, European doctors uh, learn from East Asia and bring back with them to Europe uh, from their travels and uh, their work uh, in Asia.
1: Well, that, that actually sounds really cool. And I will have to talk to you as soon as that one comes out. Um, So Albert, (laughs) Albert, that's, thank you so much for today. And I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, you take care of yourself.
0: Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation as well. And thanks again for having me. I really had a, a good time.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Albert Wu author of from christ to confucius german missionaries chinese christians and the globalization of christianity 1860 to 1950 on the new books and german studies podcast you can download other interviews with scholars of german studies on itunes or at newbooksnetwork.com under category people and places german studies thank you for listening